This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Accenture overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. When you step outside and take that first glimpse at the night sky, have you ever wondered what the first humans to do so thought as they looked up at the stars and planets? How did those early observations of the night sky develop into the science of astronomy as we know it today? Stuart Clark is an astronomer and writer who's been tackling some of these big questions in his new book, Beneath the Night. For this episode, I got the chance to speak to Stuart about the first stargazers, the emergence of astronomy, and where it might ultimately take us. So I'm Dr. Stuart Clark, and I've been writing about astronomy and the study of the universe now um, for over 25 years. And this has it's made me fascinated in all aspects of astronomy, how we study the night sky, how we've come to believe what we believe, um, and and how it's uh, you know, how it's integrated itself into the wider uh, uh, sort of public consciousness as well. Yes, and this is sort of how our um, paths have crossed, um, how we got to have this conversation, because um, your your latest book is Beneath the Night, and it's really, I suppose, it's a, a sort of it's sort of a history of astronomy, isn't it? Kind of going from very very early period up to up to the present day. What what, what was the inspiration behind the book? So it it evolved over quite a long period of time, and uh, you know, I've I wrote um, a, a three novels 
which um, dramatised the life of um, key astronomers and scientists in astronomical history. So Galileo and Kepler, um, Newton and Halley, um, Einstein and Lemaitre. And as I was writing those, I was wanting to put their their achievements into the, so their correct historical context and and to dramatise those events you know that made that seem like the best way to do that and as i was writing those books they're the they were the, they were called the sky's dark labyrinth trilogy uh i started to realize more than ever um how much our study of the night sky and just being beneath the night has influenced culture and society in ways that are almost invisible to us now you know just timekeeping for example the names of the days of the week um the reoccurrence of the number seven you know lucky seven and all of that all of all of it can be traced to to our interest in the night sky and wondering um why we're surrounded by this this vast universe and then I was very, very lucky um, in that uh, Faber Books um, just contacted me one day and said, you know, we'd be really interested in working with you uh, to find a project in common. And we had a, a meeting and um, gradually uh, sort of put this idea together to tell a history of of humankind, really, uh, with reference to the night sky and to look at astronomy and science in its cultural context and also where it's influenced um, artists and poets and philosophers um, over the years as well and then trace the way that our, um, our sort of relationship with the night sky has changed um, over um, tens of thousands of years. I think if, if you're sort of thinking about... Um astronomy in a sort of chronological um timeline um how, how just how far can you go back i mean what what were the the, the first astronomers and, and and what were the first observatories so this i find absolutely fascinating is that if you start to look back in time and sort of trace this this interest in the night sky backwards in time uh you eventually run out of written records. If the fascination with astronomy is there in the very earliest writings and quite well developed, you know we have we we have no idea when the the, the constellations were defined. We um, really so some of the earliest ones. Uh, let's take Taurus for example. You know that seems to be a super early constellation um, and we see it we think on some of the cave paintings in Lascaux and these are caves in France where there's this extraordinary um, sort of cavern which they call the the hall of the bulls and in there uh, there is 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 picture of, of half a, a, a bull if you like it sort of fades away the back half of it just fades into nothing but there upon the shoulder of just above the shoulder of this bull looks like a representation of the Pleiades 
And so this is 19,000 years ago or something, this um, picture was painted. So it seems as if some human 19,000 years ago looked up into the night sky and pictured a bull in that location, exactly the same that we do today. And this truly sparked my imagination. And it made me realize that actually looking at the night sky is one of the only common human experiences that everybody can have. Most people can look at the night sky uh, and have been able to since the dawn of humankind. And when you see this vast um, array you know, of, of stars in the night and, and you feel that kind of awe and that sort of there's a I don't know whether it's sort of a little bit tinged with fear. Um, there's just this really um, interesting you know, sort of cocktail of feelings that that you get being underneath the night sky, and that um, it made me realise was a common human experience throughout all of, of history, and I think that's what really made me think I have to write this book because I have to explore this um, and all the ways it's influenced culture, society, science, philosophy. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I suppose when you think back to those early astronomers, well, those early people who looked up at the night sky, I mean, they obviously wouldn't have had, you know, the infrastructure, things like optics and, and observatories. But can we sort of look at things like stone circles and, 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 and Neolithic um, kind of structures as, as a means of deciphering whether or not they were changing their environment to, to get a better look at the night sky? Yes, yeah, really fascinating. So I did do quite a lot of research into Stonehenge and into other um, uh, sort of archaeological sites um, around the world and the pyramids and, and things like this. And there definitely seems as if there are some celestial alignments. Uh, I do not think any of them are observatories as we would think of them today, sort of general purpose structures for observing the night sky. I do not think that's that's the case. Um, but they do seem to be uh, they're almost more like monuments to very specific celestial um, alignments. So like Stonehenge, for example, and the, 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 the rising of the midsummer's sun, that sort of thing. There are other um, places in, in Egypt, temples and things, that appear to have alignments to where Sirius um, rises, uh, sort of makes its first uh, rise um, in of the year, the heliacal rising. And all of this is... Uh, designed to try to link events on Earth with what's happening up in the night sky as well, and in the philosophies, the early philosophies, you 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 quite clearly see that they're thinking that you know what happens in the heavens is a mirror to what's happening on the Earth. That natural cycles are recurring. And we know now, of course, that this is because the Earth is in orbit around the sun. So we see different stars at different times of year, just because the Earth is in a different part of its orbit. 
that seemed, I think, to the ancient people like too much coincidence. You know, so they they saw they saw a causal link between um, you know the rising of certain uh, celestial objects. So we we have the phrase today, the dog days of summer, that comes um, from ancient Egypt, in fact, where Sirius is the dog star, the brightest star in Canis Major. And it just so happens that it rises or used to rise um, in, uh, in the summertime in ancient Egypt, the very hottest parts of um, the summer. And they were very well aware that the sun gave heat and light and energy to the earth. That's just obvious. And when this brightest star in the sky rose as well, they believed its heat um, was being contributed to the summer and that's what made the summers hot. And that's why we, we still use today the dog days of summer to refer to the hottest part um, you know, of, the month, of, of the season. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I think it's really, really fascinating um, considering that. And I suppose it brings us on to that uh, dreaded word, uh, astrology, because a lot of astronomers um, these days would sort of look down on astrology. Um, but I, th- I think I think it's really interesting when you first kind of think about, even as recently as people like Ptolemy, um, astrology and astronomy were essentially the same discipline, would you say? Yes, absolutely. They're, I mean, the, astrology is almost like the first attempt at physics. And what's important um, sort of to recognise as well is that, you know, when you talk about, say, Ptolemaic uh, astrology, it's not about star signs and and birth signs and and those sorts of things. It's actually trying to find um, links between celestial events and, and earthly events and is there some kind of motivating force between those essentially it's trying to explain natural forces and what we now think what we now explain with with the laws of physics and it's it's like a step beyond um gods as explanations 
So as soon as you have, you, you know, just the, the forces of nature, an early way to try to describe them or try to understand them was to link them to a supernatural entity. A, a god or a goddess and it was their will which you know made the wind blow or made the the the, the, the rains and the storms um, that we see throughout the year and astrology is like a step away from that it takes out this sort of conscious um, godlike being and tries to say that it's all about natural objects and the influences that natural objects have on each other. Uh, it's only in the 19th century uh, that you, you have a new movement and a new astrology that gives the, you know, the daily horoscopes and um, things that we're familiar with today. Um, so trying to um, explain uh, people's um, personalities and when they should do things was, was a part of astrology for a long time. Uh, uh, and certainly some early astronomers like Kepler, you know, in the 16th and 17th century, they would make a lot of money from uh, casting horoscopes and, and giving advice to people, um, their, their clients. Um, but this idea of you know, being a Leo or, and, and checking your stars to, in the newspapers and things like that, that doesn't come until, until much later. So from that point of view, astrology... Um, is, is virtually intertwined um, with astronomy. Astronomy is all about noting the positions of the planets you know, and the stars, and then astrology tries to, to make sense of that in the same way we use astrophysics to make sense of it today. Yes. I mean, I, I suppose that's kind of almost like the spiritual side of, of looking up at the night sky and, and the movements of objects. Um, but it, it's it's really interesting to consider the sort of practical side. Um, how 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 long ago? Like, what what's the sort of earliest um, evidence of civilizations using astronomy for things like agriculture or or navigation? Those sort of pr practical day to day uses of of observing the movement of stars. Mm. So it goes before agriculture, um, and it the way that it appears to to, to work is that astronomy um, was used to set the, the time of winter ceremonials. So these were times of the year when um, hunter-gatherer communities would meet other hunter-gatherer communities. They would all come together at a certain time, at a certain place, and that was where they would trade, that's where people would um, meet and marry, um, that's where loans um, of, uh, of, of livestock or um, food or things were made, which would then be repaid the next year. And, and the times of these winter ceremonials were set by astronomical means, so um, the shortest day of the year and, and that kind of thing. So it was used as a as a sort of an annual marker, really, and uh, you know each of the hunter gatherer um, tribes seems to have astronomers and sky watchers who help them determine when to go to the winter ceremonial, and uh, and so certain work has been done, you know, in recent centuries 
with uh, these um, uh, with, with with populations of people today who shun all contact with the West and uh, or, or, or with the, the developed world, and and live in a much more uh, sort of early primitive state, if you like, and all of them watch the sky for timekeeping. You know, it's so. So this is this is what uh, people believe was the earliest use of the night sky. Very practical, timekeeping um, sense, and 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 then, as you say, navigation as well. Uh, the, it's it's a great framework and a map on the sky. It changes every year. You know, changes every day, um, and so you can use that to set courses and navigate as well. That brings us on really nicely to I just think one of the most fascinating aspects of all this, and it's it's just the the notion of people being able to create a time system of years and months going going down to minutes and seconds. Do we know much about how they did that? I mean, if, if it's just daunting to imagine having a blank slate and trying to come up with a, a division yeah. that would that would that would be cyclical. Yeah, it it is, and um, I think it happens. Uh, over a long period of time and, and sort of it, it develops. Um, so I don't think, uh, in fact, I'm sure that sort of no one sat down and worked it all out and said, here it is. It just develops. And when you think about how it might develop, uh, so instantly, obviously, day and night, that's sort of pretty easy. That's linked to the sun, you know, when when the sun is in the sky, it's it's the daytime. When it's not, it's it's the nighttime. Uh, and then they become ever more sophisticated at tracking that, seeing where the sun rises along the horizon at different times of the year, which affects the length of the day. So, so day and night, that's that's clearly related to the sun in some way. And then you have the month. Um, and this is a division of the year, which we'll get to in a minute, um, that's related to the moon and the phases of the moon that's, that that goes through. So, so, so with the days as your shortest division based on the sun, you can then create a longer division of time based on the moon, the month. And then you can get to the year, which is based on the appearance of the stars in the night sky. When the stars return to their um, original positions, there's your, there's your year gone by. So in, in that sense, you can start to see uh, that all our timekeeping, you know, is based on astronomy. And of course, we know, you know that the cycle of the seasons is also clearly based on the, 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 the movement of the planet around the sun and the orientation of the earth with the sun. And so it's intimately linked straight away. Um, the seasons are intimately linked straight away with the changing appearance of the heavens. And then there's other form that, you know, as you say, the minutes and the seconds, these appear to come um, from Babylonian astronomy. So it's pretty much the earliest form of astronomy that we have any real written record of um and it's uh, it's it's suggested that these are even finer divisions of how long it takes um the, the sun to move you know a second of arc or a minute of arc along its its path um through the sky uh and then if you go to the really earliest things that we we, we think might show um astronomical timekeeping these are um 
archaeological artifacts, often um, stone tablets and um, fossilized uh, animal bones on which it appears there might have been sort of tally marks. There's someone maybe watching uh, or charting the, the, the phases of the moon or, or things like that. And so they can date back into well into prehistory. Yeah, th- I think it's 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 one of the things that I most think about when I'm kind of um, confronted with like post-apocalyptic fiction is is you would, you would have to start tracking the days, wouldn't you? Because you would just lose you would lose what day it was and what month it was, and you would have to slowly regain that over time. It's just incredible to to think about having to do that, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's absolutely. And do you know if there is one reason why we should um, uh, yeah why why we should hope for an apocalypse um, is because us astronomers would become very important again. <laughs> So, if you go to the if you go to the if you go to the Mayan um, uh, sort of ruins uh, these days, you know you can you can see that the astronomers, you know, they have their houses inside the walls. You know, they're 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 right in the inner circle. They're super important people because they chart the sky and they do the timekeeping. Um, so 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 a day may come again. <laughs> who, who do you think have been some of those? Um most important astronomers um, throughout history? Who have been the people that have, that have really propelled astronomy forward, do you think? So I, it's it's so interesting because when you look at, uh, you know, people like um, Ptolemy, you know, uh, and his list of the constellations, where well, we still use most of those constellations today, and it's not suggested that he... Um, invented those, but he probably collated them and then sort of massaged them and developed them um, from other cultures as well. Uh, so, so, so he's extremely important in that sense. When you sort of look at the at the way sort of stargazing and use of the night sky uh, for timekeeping and navigation, where that really changes is with Johannes Kepler. And so he was, he's supremely interested in understanding the arrangement of the planets in the night sky. So the planets stick out and, and beg explanation because, as we've said, uh, the sun, the moon and the stars, all of those um, seem to align very naturally with seasons on, on the earth and, and you have really nice timekeeping divisions there. You also have these five wandering stars, uh, the, the planets. So Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter and Saturn, all the naked eye planets. They don't really fit with any timekeeping that's obvious on, the, on Earth. They don't correlate with anything. And so it just naturally becomes the question to ask, well, well what are they doing up there? So this, this is before you get to the question, what are they it's, a, it's what's their purpose? We think, you know, that the, the universe around us mirrors what goes on on the Earth. Uh, but these, these, these wandering stars, these planets, what is their function? And that's where we sort of get into astrology and the influence of these planets and their changing configurations, you know, can influence natural um, events on, on the Earth and increasingly sort of influence people and their personalities or, or set their personalities at the time of, of their birth. 
Uh, and but Johannes Kepler, he finds this mathematical rules or three mathematical laws, you know, that, that define planetary motion. And that is an absolute watershed moment in history because it shows that the night sky is in some way mechanical, if you like. That it, it, it works like a, a mechanism, a clockwork. It's not just moving um, based on some deity's whim or God's will or something like that. And the importance of Kepler's idea is that if we can understand something like celestial motion, something that is, is almost thought to be beyond human understanding until Kepler, we can understand anything with mathematics. We can reduce it uh, to, to a set of formulae and therefore have knowledge about it. So it's the key watershed moment um, you know, be between you know pre-science, if you like, and 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 what we now recognise as science, and Newton is a very big figure in all of that as well. The overarching theory of gravity. One of the things that I discovered, however, writing beneath the night, um, is there's a completely different way to look at this, and that this. This, this, this enlightenment, this uh, time of enlightenment, is to the ordinary people um, is a time when their understanding of the night sky, its role and its function, and this sort of theory of everything that they've built up around the movement of the celestial objects and how that can be um, interpreted on Earth, it's all taken away from them. And now suddenly um, we have a situation where uh, understanding the night sky and the universe around is the purview of an elite few, a hierarchy of scientists um, or, or natural philosophers as they were called then, who know mathematics and can take these measurements with, these, with this new technology that's coming online at, in those days, you know, telescopes and, and, and things like that. So there are some uh, philosophers who look back at this and, 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 and they don't call it the, enchant, uh, the enlightenment. They call it um, you know, the, 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 the disenchantment. Um, and it throws people into confusion because they don't know what to believe anymore. And in some ways, the, the rise of you know, the star sign and astrology in the 19th century um, that's a reaction to that. It's sort of trying to, to democratise the night sky again and, and, and give understanding back to the people. Now, I think we've greatly moved beyond that and I think we're now in a position, uh, for the first time in history, really, where we do have a, a sort of a, a true enchantment, I call it in the book, in that we, you know, we have developed ways, of, all of us of science communicators, of talking about the science of the universe um, in a way that doesn't require detailed understanding of the, the mathematics. And it does take, it, it, it does mean that you have to take some things on faith um, that uh, this is, you know, you, you're being told the, the truth by the astronomers that are doing the studying and, and that. But we have actually sort of democratized our understanding, our scientific understanding 
of the night sky and the wider universe. And so that's changed again uh, our relationship with the night sky. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think for a lot of people that, that enchantment is sort of best represented or at least represented by sort of the, the, the space age and the space race and Sputnik and Yuri Gagarin and Apollo 11, even up to something like the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope. Would you agree with that? Is, is that, is that a, do you think astronomy has kind of propelled technology forwards in that respect? Yes, it's, and it's a two-way street. So, you know, t- technology sort of that's developed, uh, you know, in, in the world around us moves into the space sector you know, and vice versa. So the current crop, for example, of um, of, of CubeSats, these small satellites that can make up the, the mega constellations like um, Starlink and, and things like that. Uh, you know, a lot of the technology that's being used there comes from mobile phones, the miniaturization of that technology and computing power and things like that. Um, so it changes. It, it uh, our our relationship with the night sky. Um, and I think it changes it um, in a sense for the better because through um, spacecraft and going to other worlds, through the Hubble Space Telescope taking these amazing images that are used for science and for artistic um, inspiration, uh, you know, we now see... The, the night sky and the wider universe as as a tangible physical place that we can imagine ourselves visiting it's not a remote utterly different realm and i think this is the the, the flip side of that um scientific revolution uh and the, the sort of the disenchantment that i talked about is that once you get um, into the enlightenment period and you start thinking of the the worlds um, and the night sky these celestial objects as 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 places and objects that can be studied and understood rather than mysterious heavenly lights in the sky you know you 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 bring them, uh, for want of a better phrase, more down to earth. You kind of, you know, you think, oh, I can, I can translate what I know about on the earth into the wider universe. Before then, the laws governing the, the night sky and the laws governing the earth were thought to be completely different. After Newton, they increasingly are shown to be one in the same. And so that is so that the, the space age, if you like, is sort of like the inevitable um, expression of that, that now we can go to this remote realm. You know, it is remote. It is different, but it's not it's not fundamentally different. You know, it's it's a place with the correct um, technology we can explore as human beings. Do you, do you worry though that um, sort of contrary to that, there are things like artificial satellites and light pollution, and things that are perhaps obscuring our view of the night sky and, and and kind of separating us from it? Yeah, this is something that I've done a lot of thinking about um, it, very recently, actually, um, because the. You know the the rise of the mega constellations um, t- 
took me completely by surprise, really. Just so suddenly this has all come together. And on one hand, it is really quite cool that you can go outside and you can see these, you know, the Starlink trains going over. And as sort of one-offs, that's fine, or occasional events, that's fine. If we start putting up, you know, tens to hundreds of thousands of these objects, it starts to become a real problem um, because we start to lose the view of the night sky that humans have always had. And we have to ask ourselves the question, is, is that okay? Is, you know, are we comfortable with doing that? Um, no one wants to stand in the way of progress, uh, but also, um, you have to temper the idea that, uh, you know, these are commercial companies doing this for commercial gain. And you have to tension that with, with the cultural um, implications of all of that. Um, now, a lot of these mega constellation um, operators are reducing, you know, the, the reflectivity of their, of, of their satellites and, and, and all of that. Uh, and it looks like they can get them down to sort of uh, right at the limits of naked eye um, visibility. So just a casual stargazer might not notice their impact um, very much at all. But amateur astronomers are going to see them all the time. You know, and professional astronomers, they're going to see them all the time. So it, it's a massive cause for concern and it really does require um, good dialogue between the astronomers and the commercial uh, satellite companies. And um, with that in mind, and, and just to finish on, um, what, what are your sort of your, your hopes for the future of astronomy? Yeah, well, I, I, I tell you what, um, you know, if, if I could live long enough to get the next theory of gravity or to see the next theory of gravity developed, um, that would be, um, that would make me a very happy man. Because the, the significant advances that we have made, the, the, the times when science changes its view of uh, sort of the underlying principles of the, of the universe and, and makes its greatest advances is always when we understand more about movement and gravity. So Kepler, we've talked about, and his defining the planetary uh, motion uh, into mathematics. Newton, showing that earthly movement that Galileo defined is uh, done for the same principles, you know, it goes for the same uh, reasons as celestial motion. And then Einstein changes everything again uh, with general relativity and shows that these little anomalies in um, Mercury's orbit tell us that there's a more complete theory of gravity which then predicts black holes and the, you know, the Big Bang, the, the, the formation of the, the universe. So if we could get to sort of like the quantum theory of gravity, how gravity works on, its sort of on the smallest, strongest scales, or conversely, uh, if we realise that there is a new weak field theory of gravity you know, which might mean we don't need dark matter or anything like that anymore. Um, I think that the 
possibilities and the discoveries would rapidly open up because we've got a new tool to fundamentally look at the universe. So yeah, that's my big hope for the uh, for the future of astronomy. <laughs> I think it's a pretty um, positive and optimistic uh, point at which to end the interview, uh, Stuart. So I just want to say um, good luck with the book when it comes out. And thanks very much for speaking to me today. Oh, thank you so much, Ian. It's a real pleasure. It really is nice to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Spotify.